Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Graham McMillan and I bring you an unconventional episode here with episode 332, one in which we discuss a singular volume, volume 5 of Classic G.I. Joe by IDW, collecting issues 41 through 50 of the 80s Marvel comic by Larry Hama and Rod Wiggum. In addition to attempting to catalog the many, many charms of this volume, we also talk about classic Transformers, Micronauts, Rom, Space Knight, and the Golden Heyday for licensed toy comics. It is not quite a two-hour episode, but believe me when I say, it comes much closer than you'd think. We welcome your comments at waitwhatpodcast.com, your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan, hello. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I've got no solid complaints. I mean, you know, you know me. I always I have, have insubstantial ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, but, yeah. Big things could be worse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yourself? I'm, I'm doing just fine. I have massively overeaten uh, before the podcast so we'll see if at some point I just get like nauseous or sleepy ooh exciting well let's see maybe we'll get lucky and you'll be both <laughs> <laughs> that's the podcast we want to start December off with Jeff yes so this is the first podcast of December December as you know is, is holiday month yeah. December is the month where I like get ridiculously seasonal yes as you and or what not, as you know, but or whatnots do not, I should say. Um, we have planned ahead. Like we we have we had we set each other homework or we set ourselves homework. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to that homework, yes, I want to talk to you about. Excuse me while I clear my throat. Yes, I want to talk to you about toy comics in general, because whatnots. The homework was uh, like. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as you're, as you're listening to this, uh, IDW had a sale in Comixology, and as part of the sale, they had, like, the entire Larry Hammer run of G.I. Joe. Yeah. Uh, but they also had the entire Transformers run, the entire mm-hmm. Marvel Transformers run from mm-hmm. IDW. Um, and I, I, like, unlike myself, I bought them all. Wow, that is unlike you. That's so unlike me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... You and I both were like, let's read one of the volumes of classic G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about it. But because I bought both, that what I've actually done is spent last week reading old Transformers comics. Mm. And there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up mm-hmm. in that. Like, a lot. And it really got me thinking about how, like, when I was a kid, kid, mm-hmm. I read two things. And I read the Beano, and I read you know Wizard and Chips, and all of those you know the British mags. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where, like when Transformers started, which I think was like the late '84 in the UK, mm-hmm. that was it for me. I was all in for that mm-hmm. for like a couple years, if not more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and like the, that was that was genuinely big. Like that was something I got from the first issue, and that I. I was really invested in, mm-hmm. right? At least through, like, maybe issue, I don't know, like, somewhere close to 100. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was weekly, I think, or, or bi-weekly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but but it it was like it was it was a thing. It was really a thing. And in there, they also had uh, they ended up reprinting at one point GI Joe, except it's called Action Force in the UK because of course it was. Yeah, of course it was. But but it was. Like that was in there as well, and that was like the the gateway drug to get me into those comics. Right now, before you go any further, because I think most of our uh, listeners are super savvy with this stuff, and in, in fact, probably, you know, a good chunk of them are. This is this is a completely um, familiar experience for them. But for people from the U.S. who maybe don't know as much about the U.K., you should mention. Um, because unless I'm mistaken, I'm assuming the Transformers, like like the rest of the Marvel UK reprints, were cut in half uh, to be able to allow for a fortnightly schedule. Um, I think they were printed in black and white, right? And they were usually an anthology. So it was an anthology. Mm-hmm. It was cut in half. It's a little bit more complicated. Okay. Um, as I remember it, and I might be wrong, and I'm sure people could, who are much bigger fans of this material can jump in and, and correct me in the comments. It was originally a mix of black and white and color. Mm-hmm. And then eventually at some point it became all color. I, mm. that's oh, how that's I, nice. okay. I might be wrong. All right. But definitely, like there was, there was more in color than nods, is what I remember. Well, that's excellent. I'm a, it was more the emphasis, I think, on the anthology aspect, just well, so that so it, when it you brought in GI Joe, it, well, it wasn't. It wasn't an anthology. It was two stories an issue. Oh, okay, only two. Or may, at some point, I think maybe it was three. Mm-hmm. But it was it was chunks. So it basically, got like eleven pages of Transformers uh, an issue. Right, and there's a problem with that. Obviously, like it's not a problem when you're doing bi-weekly issues, mm-hmm. but then it did at some point shift to weekly, Oof. and then you create a problem because you're running out of material. Right. Right. Uh, and there was a point where definitely the UK comic was printing material parallel with the US comic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is the US comic started as a four-issue miniseries and then came back with issue five a few months later, mm-hmm. and the UK series was ongoing from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Right. So really early on, maybe within like the first, definitely within the first six months, maybe within the first like four months, Transformers in the UK suddenly had British originated strips in there as well. Wow. So it wasn't just reprints. Mm-hmm. Right. And the British originated strips were, it's the weirdest thing. I must have been, I mean, I for real would have been 10 or 11 when these were coming out. Mm-hmm. And I was very aware that these comics were different. Mm-hmm. Right, and it was it was as much as anything visual cues mm-hmm. that gave me that. I recognized that the lettering styles were different. I recognized that the art was different. Mm. No, much more than. I mean, you think I would recognize that stories were literally cut in half, right? <laughs> right. I mean, for real, the U.S. reprints were cut in half, and if there isn't right. a natural break on page eleven, fuck it. <laughs> That's where the story ends anyway. Yeah, but I, I I can it. I'm willing. I hope you are willing to give yourself a certain amount of latitude for that because I have to say, doing Drock with you and reading 2000 AD material, there's there's a lot of times where the page count just runs out where they don't land on the strongest cliffhanger. You know what sure, I mean? Sure, but like. But here's the thing: when you're literally splitting something half in page eleven, no matter what, yeah, sometimes there's not even a cliffhanger. Sometimes you're in the middle of a scene. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? 
Um, but they did it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, the British Eurasian strips were constructed to be 11 pages long. Right. So there is actually a cliffhanger. Like, right. there is some sense of closure. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, cliffhanger closure? You know what I mean. Like, yes, it, it absolutely. Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, and I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying this, especially the earlier British Eurasian strips were boring as shit. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but also, they were clearly filler. Mm-hmm. So... I'm assuming you didn't read the Transformers comics. Uh, no. By and large, I did not. Which is to say, not at the time. Um, longtime listeners may recall, I tried to dip my toe in to a couple of the Transformers volumes, and I think I maybe made it in the first five or six issues in and then kind of had to tap out. Does that help? That doesn't provide any context for you. No, it does. So issue okay. four of Transformers, the reason I'm asking is issue four of Transformers mm-hmm. uh, is the end of the miniseries and ends with a cliffhanger, mm. like a fairly dramatic cliffhanger. Uh, the first four issues are, there's the Autobots and Decepticons, those good guys and bad guys, they're from an alien planet, they come to Earth, they get in a fight, right? right. Mm-hmm. They bring their war from their home planet Cybertron to Earth. Mm-hmm. And issue four ends with... Uh, the discovery that there were Autobots released in prehistoric times and they transformed into dinosaurs because, of course, they did. Right? Yeah. But there was also a bad guy. There was also a Decepticon around the same time. And he comes back and kills all the Autobots. And that's how the fourth issue ends. Wow. Right? So that's a fairly dramatic cliffhanger. Yeah. And the British strips, which immediately followed it, are like, so before that happened, here's some flashback story. <laughs> I like, you know, even when you're 10, you're like, what the fuck is this bullshit? Right, right. No, I want to know what happened next. Why are you doing this? Um, so, yeah, I was I was very against the UK strips for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, uh, they came into their own uh, through, through various machinations, one of which is they basically got a cast to themselves. They sort of finagled a cast themselves that they didn't share with the American strips. Ooh, that's smart. Um, so they could do things. In the yeah, stories. things could but actually happen. When, yeah. when you're basically literally creating filler, you can't do anything. You have to restore everything to, to the yeah. the same point where you left it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then there comes a point, you know, honestly, towards the end of me reading, but the the the, the movies coming out, the Transformer movie comes out. And the British comic basically goes, okay, we're yoinking all of those characters, which theoretically take place in the future, back to the present day. And that's our cast of characters. Mm. You know, so, so now, now we can tell a story. And mm-hmm. the story has, like, you know, time traveling, obviously. Right. But, but you know, this is our cast. Uh, and then I was like, okay, I'm on board. Also, they changed, they, they, they got in a writer called Simon Furman. Yes, so I was going to mention. No one is like, he's Transformers writer. Absolutely. Uh, and, what, and what's funny is, I got so into reading the Transformers comics that I bought a full-priced collection of the British Transformers comics. Wow. Because it really was like nostalgia. Uh, yeah, and yeah. And it's got like, you know, the, the big storyline I remember, which was called Target 2006. Right, mm-hmm. and it's Simon Furman's big thing. And what I did not remember till reading this is Simon Furman, at least then, is like the most hilariously sub Claremontian writer. <laughs> but also, he has such a structure that he reuses over and over again for his for his episodes, mm-hmm. which is 
the hero will be narrating things. Okay? And the first page will be will it'll always start in media res. Mm-hmm. And the first issue will always be like a fight scene or something. Some kind of action is going on. Mm-hmm. And the hero is narrating. Always seems somewhat like put out and like grumpy about events. <laughs> but will always end with the narration going, you know, I didn't realize this was dot, dot, dot. And then it would be the name of the fucking story. Nice. Right? No matter what the name of the story would be. He, and he, he stuck to that formula so tight, Jeff. <laughs> so tight. <laughs> Um, but at the time, like when I'm ten, I I like did that was catnip. That genuinely was like everything I wanted to see in a comic. Right? Yeah, and right. he did this wonderful, overly complicated sub Claremont type plotting that mm-hmm. was great. You know, uh, helped by the fact that it was also more. Uh, I don't know if more complex is the right way of putting it, but it wasn't treating its readers with the contempt that the American material was at the time. Mm. Because the American series starts with Bill Mantlo plotting at least the first two issues. And right. Ralph Macchio was scripting. And I think Macchio finishes off the four-issue miniseries, and then Bob Budiansky takes over when it becomes a regular book. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that Budiansky doesn't really know what he's doing with the comic for you know, at least a year and a half. Mm. And so you get some just wacky shit in there. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, let's go undercover in a race car track. <laughs> and then we might convince the great oil baron that he can, he can give us gas. But not wow. normal. Like, he can give us human gas. We can turn it into alien gas. Because, of course, we can. Right. right? Um, Optimus Prime, the leader of the Opt- Autobots, dies... In in a story wherein Optimus Prime and the leader of the bad guys Megatron both put their their uh, brains for like their computer brains into a video game, and they have both sworn that whoever wins in the video game gets to live, and whoever loses the video game will self destruct. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Optimus Prime loses, is aware that Megatron cheated, and goes, "Well, I gave my words." <laughs> 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 oh dear that's yeah. Mm. Um, yeah so it's uh it's not the best yeah 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 whereas like again i'm not familiar with the material but i am aware that simon Furman's transformers means something you know what i mean like it's it, uh, what it's it's it not only means something insofar as like it's uh, he took the, he took the material entirely seriously, mm-hmm. right? But he honestly, especially when you read it as an adult, like is struggling to come to terms with like what stories do I actually tell? Like how do I how do I deal with this? How do I actually handle this material? Right, right. So you get you know let's make friends with the oil baron. Uh, I mean, Budiansky does some really interesting things as well. He creates a. a a human antagonist who he completely wastes because I think she appears like twice after he creates her. Mm. Um, but she's like a scientist who gets crippled by the Transformers and then creates an exoskeleton, which because it's comics, is basically like she is naked and she has circuitry over herself. But like, <laughs> let's move on from that. But she creates an exoskeleton and she's like, I'm just going to fucking kill all the robots. Mm-hmm. Like, I know there's meant to be good ones and bad ones. I'm going to kill all of them. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's a great concept for an antagonist yeah yeah definitely he uses her twice after that 
Mm. Mm. Like, the fucking oil baron appears more often. Oh. Right? The, the fucking guy who builds the video game that offers <laughs> appears more often. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Podiansky is, is like, I don't really know what I'm doing with the material. I'm, you know, I, I don't know how to make it work. And and almost comes to terms with it before he leaves, but not really. Furman, meanwhile, takes it entirely at face value, plays it entirely seriously. And although he is, and I think many people will be upset at me saying this for who are fans of the material, he's a much lesser writer than like Wagner and Grant. He does the Wagner and Grant trick of, I'll just graft other genres onto this. Mm. right so mm-hmm. he creates essentially his own cast uh but also is then like okay but i want to tell a war story so here's like the dirty dozen but they're transformers right you know uh i want to tell he, he eventually Furman eventually takes over the american comic and when he does he has a four issue run called the matrix quest they're searching for like i think it's called the creation matrix or the matrix of leadership or both i can't remember but each issue is ripping off a different movie wow and it's actually really fun right Mm -hmm. so you get a western issue you get an alien ripoff and it it works for want of a better way of putting it Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um and so there is something about him just going I'm I'm just going to like this is this is a comic about giant robots punching each other. I'm okay with that. But I'm going to like for that matter Manflow did with Micronauts. I'm going and to Rom. Tell, Yeah, but I'm gonna tell all the stories I want to tell anyway. So like mm-hmm. Mantlo turns Micronauts into like Kirby's Fourth World meets Star Wars. Right. Uh, Furman is like, fuck it, I'm going to do a war comic, but there's going to be like superhero tropes in there. There's going to be horror tropes in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there is going to be some, uh, you know, grandiose Marvel Comics cosmic ideas in here as well. And and as a result, Furman creates the the mythology that has been recycled through and through and through the various reboots of Transformers. Like so much of the stuff is his material. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, like we've talked about in 2008 when we talked about in Drog. Like, he's just trying to fucking meet the deadline. Right. He's just dancing, you know? Right, he's right. Like, he's like, what can I do to meet the next deadline? Okay, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a special ops team on Cybertron. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to stop this political assassination. Okay, uh, like, I'm bringing this villain back from the, back from the future. And he's going to be my my main antagonist because I've been told by the comic I've been told by the toy company I have to sell this this action figure. Okay, he's my bad guy. Right. So what can I do with this guy? Oh, he's the hero now. But how can I make him different from the regular leader? Uh, okay, he's got like a personality complex where he thinks he's not good enough. Okay, I can work with that. And he, as a result, he builds all this mythology that that, like I said, just gets recycled and rebooted and reused through panicking <laughs> right right yeah you're just being like oh shit mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah so um hmm. I, I should say for i like i said I, I bought a volume of the the full price transfer i think it's called transformers uk classic co- comics uh-huh. or something like that for people who are fans of that material or who read that material back in the day and i've been curious about revisiting it I I genuinely would recommend those collections because there's a lot of background material. It's like half comics, half 
contextualizing oh, really? it. Imagine getting thrill power overloads and the case files together in one volume. Wow, that'd be pretty amazing. You know, so you, you basically get introductions to each storyline with them going, this is what was going on. This is what, like, here's interviews with the creators. Right. And then you get to read the story, which is kind of a great format for a reprint. Yeah, that's great. You know, and, and I, I, you know, that's, it's, it's made for super fun reading because a lot of it was things I remembered, you know, or, or you know, not necessarily to, I remembered the back behind the scenes stuff because I didn't, but I remembered the comics they're referencing, you know, and in addition to the, the stories, they also reprint a lot of the ancillary materials. So the letters columns, the next issue. Adverts, oh, wow. Oh, nice. Like, and all of that shit is in there as well. Oh. So you really are getting a chunk of stuff. Uh, which, if you grew up on it like I did, evokes the nostalgia in a very specific way. Right? In a very mm-hmm. strong... I don't just remember the comic. Like, I remember this is the way they advertise stuff. Right. I remember this cover. You know, because yeah. they reprint all the covers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh, shit, yes, I remember that. I remember these terrible taglines. I remember this. <laughs> and then you get... Well, British comics, especially Marvel comics, had they all had an exceptional amount of cover text, and more often than not, it was puns. Oh, right, right. right. So, so you really are like, oh, I, I do remember, you know, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the the people writing about it are also not afraid to say call stuff out as a bad idea. So, there's one storyline that jumps from the weekly to the that year's annual. Mm-hmm. And annuals in the UK are like significantly more expensive than the regular comic, but also hardcovers. Mm-hmm. Right, so you're reading like a, a six part storyline in the weekly, and then it's like this, like the final chapter of this is in the annual, which isn't out for a month, and Oof. also it's only one story of like four stories in the annual, mm-hmm. and it's only going to take up pages. Oh, but you have to spend like you know three pounds to get it. Wow. As opposed to whatever, like seventy five pence or whatever the, the weekly was. Classic Marvel, right? So, like, so it's a big deal. Uh, and the 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 person doing the background material is like, this was a bad idea, and they never did it again. And you have Simon Furman being like, yeah, I thought it would be a good idea, and I was wrong. Interesting. Like, it it did not work. It killed the momentum of the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it is it. It's funny how um, I mean, you and I have seen that trick work you know like Engelhart on the avengers did such an amazing job weaving the giant size avengers stuff into his main storylines he set all of his big climaxes to it um and that can work but you know there's less of a delay you know there, well, but, it's a full-fledged like, story it, it, for the most it's part a full-fledged story right? yeah mm-hmm. it's a very different thing if you have to buy this more expensive thing and you don't. No, exactly. You, know, it, yeah. you get like it's it's not the full issue. Yeah, you you're following this thing along, and all of a sudden it's like, well, you have to pay six times more money, and it's going to be, you know, a quarter of the book. Yep. Yeah. 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 It uh, it it's had. I really do feel like yes. I feel like this is a maneuver that that Marvel ripped off with its various nine dollar anniversary issues and things, but you know. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. It, it's it's an odd thing where you can see threads, you know, going into like the 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 British sort of format of the comics. Then that have come out. Cause, I mean, 
things like Al Ewing grew up in this stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Al Ewing talked about, you know, the British Secret Wars reprints, which was the same format. It was like two stories, uh, uh, an issue, uh, and and stories would continue, like, you know, in that case, like, to the summer specials or whatever. Right. Where, again, they wouldn't necessarily all be the, this, that story, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see those things, those threads coming back through. Mm. And and part of it is, I'm sure things like, you know, the Infinity War panels come from some kind of, you know, not only the, the nostalgia of... You know, it's like Atlantis attacks, but also the nostalgia of oh, it's like Secret Wars too. Right, right, yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to talk about just because I think I, this is um, it's really funny because we we've got another volume up our sleeve that we will be discussing, but I, I do think that it's sort of worth mentioning the fertile ground, I suppose, of like you said, the toy comic, and particularly licensed toy well, comics in the 80s. So what I, what I was going to ask is, like, did you grow up in toy comics? Because I was trying to think. Like, you, Micronauts must have been running when you were kids in ROM, maybe? Uh, no, yeah. So, because I'm, because I'm older than you, um, you know, I think Marvel started moving in on the toy stuff, kind of, how do I put it? Like, I don't think, and I... God knows history could prove me wrong, but for the most part, they didn't really license, start licensing stuff until, of course, Conan, and then Star Wars was super big, and then as Shooter moves into place, he takes the idea of licensing comics very seriously, and the idea being, you know, you advertise in our comics, and we can do comics based on your toys and so micronauts which hits i think relatively late 70s early 80s i am old enough slash young enough to to pick it up um rom is out it didn't seem that appealing to me i think because for a variety of reasons that i could get into but i mean i was i was a pretty big fan of micronauts for I don't know, at least the first two or three years, I would say. And um, I was going to say, like, at least the first year was legitimately just great comics. Oh, absolutely. It you know, was, like, I, yeah. I say this as someone who loves Micronauts overall, especially Mantle's Micronauts, but it does kind of lose its way after uh, Golden goes for a while. Well, yeah, definitely, because that's it. Like, Golden and Mantlo are going for broke. And I think that is one of the things that I think is, is interesting about the toy comic material is some people just see it as tripe and some see it as just kind of an opportunity to tell the stories that they want to tell and they take it 100% seriously. Like Micronauts was Mantlo and Golden did not treat that like, you know, the way that Budiansky sort of treated Transformers. Um, I mean, admittedly, I, as I recall, Budiansky didn't he come from the marketing department? And I, I, of... I, I honestly don't remember. I mean, um, Budiansky had had other issues going on. Like Transformers burns through its cast really quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like and, for real. By yeah. the time you're on like the, the end of the second year, for all intents and purposes, the cast that started the comic is gone. 
right? And and there are just consistently new Transformers introduced and then ignored because they have to be because they've introduced new characters over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. You know, and exactly. that's not true, Micronauts, in part because Mantlo basically doesn't give a shit. Well, it's one part that Mantlo doesn't give a shit. It's also the fact that the genius is um and this is kind of the case with Rom as well. They are not super successful toy lines for the most part. Like Micronauts is huge for like two or three years, but it never, as a toy line, it never really makes it past, I think, arguably a second wave of figures, some of which are just more or less kind of gently reskinned or yeah, yeah, yeah. slightly and different like, vehicle takes, you know? Yeah, and like, well, I'm just outright flopped. Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, suddenly you have those things that are uh, essentially you can you can run with them and do whatever you want. But you know, as we'll talk a little bit uh, when we talk about GI Joe and with Transformers, these are incredibly successful toy lines, and so there's just tons of new product coming out all the time, and the expectation that those they become characters. You know? and, and the, yes, that each subsequent new line mm-hmm. will be promoted by the comic. Exactly, exactly. So I mean, it's a, it's in in that sense, there's a sort of victim of its own success. You know, what I think mm-hmm. is interesting is you have people like Furman, you have people like Mantlo, you have people like the sainted, soon to be discussed in detail, Larry Hama. You know, and then you do have people like Hama says, like he was offered G.I. Joe after literally every other single person and writer and editor in the Marvel bullpen more or less turned it down. Yeah, yeah, he was he was the last choice. And, um, you know, I I think what's interesting is you do see people who can be in. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's tremendous amounts of fondness for, say, DC's mask or whatever was that four issues and I think was that, written yeah, by that, Michael Fleischer was, or something. Uh, I don't know if it was Fleischer, but it, it, it was definitely like four or six issues. It, it didn't last very long. It didn't last very long, and it, you know there was just kind of some of the toy stuff was kind of like okay, we put the action feature in, you know, we've dutifully done our work and cashed our checks, but you know there are, and I think this is something that I I find at least in, in my sort of limited access through Drock and some of my excitement exploring some of the other British comics. Um, and and honestly, it's something that I see in people like Chris Claremont, is like, it doesn't matter what you put them on, they are so stoked to be telling a comic story that they're, they're going to, tell the shit out of it you know sort of the same way with the artists that you get when you get someone like you know mike golden you know really just just ramping the shit out of his out of his influences um and you know i i it's i I hate to make that seem so isolated because i'm sure there are other toy comic artists that i'm you know that were stronger (laughs) but it's um you know, like I'm used to thinking of them as the experienced Marvel hands like Sal Basima on on Rom or Herb Trimpey on the early issues of G.I. Joe that I saw because yeah. my brothers picked it up. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Um, but occasionally you just got people who would get in there and just like fucking go for broke. And that's, I mean, that's also the sort of thing being an American comic fan in the eighties and nineties and hearing things where people are like, Oh yeah, man, you got to read Grant Morrison's toy comic or was it, was it a toy comic? Wasn't, didn't he do like a bunch of stuff? He did Zoids. Yeah. The Zoids. People are like, you got to check out his Zoids story, you know? And just that idea of like, people were like, you know, um, they were going to make the best of, of what they could with what they had. But I think it's also sort of a shame in a way, um, as we will get into, I hope when we actually talk about the actual volume, like, G.I. Joe, under Larry Hama, was huge. That was, yes, that was, was, was a, a massively successful book for Marvel, yeah. Yeah, they were getting, at, during the height of, like, between 85 and 87, they were getting 12, he was getting 1,200 fan letters a week. You know, they were selling something like 350,000 copies a month. I think at its heyday and it's, I mean, those are those. I know that of course, back then the marketplace was a very different place. So I would have to look and see if that's 350 K of sell through or 350,000 were being printed, but it's still super impressive numbers. And as Hama himself pointed out in, in later years, they brought tremendous numbers of new readers into comics People who were who had saw the Transformers or GI Joe on TV and just wanted more of that materials, mm-hmm. just wanted it. They went, they got the comics, and then they ended up, you know, buying, you know, just like the rest of us, buying other comics. So um, it was a weird opportunity. Larry Hama talks about getting letters from housewives who, you know, basically watched the cartoon with the kid kid wanted the comic book they ended up reading the comic books and then they got into it as well you know uh in part because hama was awesome as we will soon cover hopefully in enthusiastic depth but also he was great with his with his female characters you know they were yeah and you know and and that's very much the case of like gi joe and not transformers transformers is definitely like the lesser comic even Mm -hmm. though for me at the time, like, you know, as a kid, it was, it, it really was like, oh, this is fucking great. Yeah. And I think white comics have or had the ability to do that in a way that other comics didn't. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. part because, and, you know, this is obviously not the case now, but, like, you could watch the Transformers cartoon. You could play with the Transformers toys. And you could read the Transformers comic. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it was it was... It was, for want of a better way of putting it, like a lifestyle brand. Yeah, it definitely was. You no, know, was GI Joe. We were like, okay, I can watch the cartoon every day. Right. I can play with the toys and collect all the toys, and right. I can I can buy the comic, and everything like circled around and advertised for each other. Yes. Right. Exactly. And, and like, yeah. and you know, you could make an argument that stay with like the Marvel movies and Disney Plus shows and everything. You know, theoretically, Marvel could do that with itself, mm-hmm. but I think there's a level of buy-in required for those things that you didn't need for for the toys back then. Mm. A level of buy-in. Well, me, I think you could passively watch uh, a cartoon on broadcast television. 
yes. in a way you can't possibly watch something that's on Disney Plus or in, in a movie theater. Right, right. Okay, I see sense? what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely the broadcast TV, which is free, the comic books, which were still very inexpensive then at the times, um, and then, yeah, then you eventually ended up with the toys, which were, you know, kind of steep if you were a kid, but in theory affordable, you know? Um, and that, if not, that's no. what birthdays and Christmases were for. Exactly, you know? right? And it became a, it, it became an event. Yeah. You know, but I remember, like, I I don't think I ever bought a Transformer under, quote-unquote, my own money. Right. But, like, at Christmas and birthdays, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, okay, so so before we dive into the other stuff, and or despite a little bit of the context, let me just ask, Graham, who was your favorite Transformer and why? Or Transformers? Um, honestly, the toys I had. Yeah. I, I, I found myself, like, uh, like John genuinely, like, projecting. Like, I had the toy, and so therefore I liked the toy, mm-hmm. and I'd look out for that character in the comic. And in every respect, the toys I had, with the exception of Optimus Prime, who I did have, the toys I had were not the ones who get a lot of play in the comic. Oh. Um, I had, uh, God, now I'm forgetting their names. Uh, I had Wind Charger, mm-hmm. who was a, like an Autobot car. I don't think I had any of the bad guys. I think I only had the good guys. Oh, really? Okay. That yeah, was my was other thing, if you had a good guy or uh, a bad but guy. Again, like, I, I wasn't in charge of this. Sure. Yeah. No, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had Optimus Prime, I had Wind Charger. Uh I feel like I had another car and I can't think who it is. But like the bad guys is oh, the the other thing about this is in the UK Megatron the main bad guy didn't exist as a toy. Really? Yeah, because he transformed into a a, oh, a into real a, gun. Right. Right. And there, there's a law against selling gun replicas as toys. Mhm. Mhm. And so he he was tripped up by that. So so um, in the UK it was the the guy who turned into it was Soundwave, the guy who turned into the the tape deck who was the lead bad guy. Um, <laughs> Thus I'm, explaining I, the rise of Brit pop and musical and the EMD fad that was to sweep the UK later. Yes, everyone wants to be Soundwave. The other thing I just realized though was I said you know I didn't have the bad guys. I'm suddenly remembering like my friends did. Oh. And that was the other thing. You played with your friends. Right, right. Right? Because I can remember really clearly that friends had uh, – one of them had Soundwave and another one had like the cassettes that went into Soundwave. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so like you'd get together and you'd all play with these toys. Mm. Mm. Yeah, which is great. I mean that's kind of – that's particularly cool, especially if some of them have the bad guys and the kids themselves are not dicks. Um. Yeah, that's that's totally. <laughs> I was great. I was lucky enough to be friends with lots of non-dick kids, or at least I didn't think they were dicks at the time. Maybe they were like terrible dicks, and I was also a dick. I don't know. <laughs> you but, know, as long as you were able to play successfully with them, yeah, that, that, I think that's that's, that's what I mean. Like, that's that's I, perfect. I, I thought they were cool. You know? Yeah. Right. Um. But yeah, I I liked I always liked the ones that I knew, with the exception of uh. Shit. Ratchet. Ratchet the Doctor. Mm. He was he was my other favorite. Oh. 
Um, and I could not tell you why, apart from reading the comic again now, he got a lot of attention. Ah. He got a lot of attention. He's basically like the lead character for like a year or so. Oh, really? Huh. Interesting. Well, because of the, the like the cliffhanger when they kill off all the all the good guys, right. he's the one who escapes mm. because he has taken someone because he turned into an ambulance and he had taken someone to hospital, mm-hmm. so he's there when everyone else gets zapped. He's he's the mechanic that brings everyone back to life, mm-hmm. and so he's kind of like the the um, the the lead or the point of view hero for like at least half a year of comics, right? Right. Yeah, no, that that would totally build him into um a character you would care about. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so those those are my favorites. It's funny. I have cuz I do think I had favorite Transformers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I didn't have favorite GI Joes. Uh and I didn't have favorite like Micronauts or anything. Although, you know, for that matter, I I sort of discovered them later. Mm-hmm. You know. So I, I guess I guess that it's sort of moved on by then. But so, so well, so since we are going to be talking about a volume of classic GI Joe, do you where where did GI Joe come in? What how were you familiar and acquainted so, so with? So what's it? funny is I chose volume five of classic GI Joe in part because like it's like a third of the way through the run. But also, it's the stuff I remember. And what I didn't remember until I was reading it again mm-hmm. is it actually has the first G.I. Joe story I've read in it. Oh, really? Yeah, the the one where they're um, they're testing out their equipment and they're, then they run into Cobra, who are also testing out equipment and spores. Yes, yeah. The that variations the, on a theme issue, which is Yeah, an that was title. the one that was reprinted uh, in Transformers. Ah, and so that was your first G.I. Joe comic. And that was my first G.I. Joe comic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know what, the internet's probably able to tell me this. Bum, uh, bum, bum. I'm going to say that that was probably like, definitely in the second year of Transformers, but um, hang on, I can just look up Action Force issue one Marvel. That's what I'm going to do. There you go. Come on, internet. Uh, and you will tell me that happened in 1987. Huh. Yeah, So so there you go. Um, that also, my Action Force when it launched as a, its own comic in the UK mm-hmm. had a really weird thing was that if you bought issue one, issue two came with it. Oh, that's like, wild! Together. Hmm. I wonder if that was the um, their like the, the free gift for issue one. Exactly, it was issue two. Yeah, instead of issue... a yeah yeah, well, instead of a freaky flyer, or a flying yeah, saucer. Like or a... Oh, um, but that that so that was eighty seven. So that would have been uh, yeah. I think that is like towards the end of the second year of, of Transformers in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it it felt like a it felt like a good net step for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because Hammer's writing is while not you know. He's no Alan Moore. It's more complex than what was happening in Transformers. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's more levels there, definitely. Yeah, uh, but also there's something there is. It, it like GI Joe is basically a superhero team. Okay, right? Like mm-hmm. there there are characters who always wear the same outfits, have code names, and have their own special abilities. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and so for, for the reader I was at the time, who is getting more into superheroes, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, sure. I understand the mechanics of this. Right. Right. I'm into this. And mm-hmm. also that, that story is super fun. It's, it's great. Like it's a great like story. Filled with like virus spores that turn into monsters. Like how how would you not want to read more after that? Well, definitely. Plus, uh, what's great about that story? Well, so let me just say, so listeners, I, we're reading classic GI Joe Volume Five. We're sort of generally talking around the toy comics of the era, but the one that Graham proposed, Classic G.I. Joe, uh, Volume 5, published by IDW. I don't know how long the sale runs, if it runs through, it will be over over, by the time time this gets posted. But it is an amazing sale in the sense of... I was going to say, this, this, I should say, is issues 41 through 50 of the the G.I. Joe run from Marvel. G.I. Joe, um, Real American Hero, written by Larry Hama, art by uh, Rod Wiggum, inks by Keith uh, Williams and Andy Mushnishki uh, at some points. And in... And it's, in it's like 85 through 86. 85 through 86. And in the one rare oversight in the IDW packaging of it, the fucking original series covers are all by Mike Zek, and they're fucking fabulous and he gets no credit in the volume itself and there's i think out of the 10 covers i think he only puts his signature on one of them but they are so distinctly zach and great great fucking covers no they really are yeah it's so funny because uh like zach's covers are really good i have i've been a mark for zach ever since i first saw his work which was in secret wars Mm, mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And looking back on it now, there's lots of reasons why I'm kind of surprised by that. Especially in Secret Wars, where, for want of a better way of putting it, he gets lazy a bunch in Secret mm-hmm. Wars. Mm-hmm. Right? There's so many characters that sometimes he is just like, fuck it. Like, you know, stick figure. Basically nothing more than a stick figure. Right. And then John Beatty's having to embellish the shit out of it. Yeah. Um, But when he's on, he's so fucking on. And in these covers... Oh yeah, like, they're so great. They are yeah. so wonderful. Yeah, um, and then you have Rod Wingham's art, which is entirely serviceable. <laughs> it yeah, feels wonderfully middle of the road nineteen eighties Marvel, and for me, that's a plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's but, but it's it's not anything special. Yeah, it it will surprise absolutely nobody that Ron Wiggum uh, is went on to and is still the artist of the comic strip Gil Thorpe. Um, it, it's just yeah, that, his... that that seems fitting. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, but but um, I think in theory, if people are a GI Joe fan, they they probably already know this. Um, Larry Hama, who writes the, all these issues and wrote all pretty much all of the issues before, uh, is, is kind of the driving force and just an amazing figure and, and kind of an amazing figure for, 
I mean, so many reasons. He's, you know, he is he is the perfect guy to write G.I. Joe for a lot of reasons, not least of which is Hama started off as a cartoonist, as a comic book artist. He was actually uh, an assistant in Wally Wood's studio when Wood was drawing things like Cannon and Sally Forth. In fact, he was he was the artist art assistant on books that uh, Wood was drawing that were published uh, by and for the U.S. military. In fact, so he served in Vietnam. Um, as a detonations expert and uh, continued to bring an incredible wealth of knowledge about how the military works um, to the G.I. Joe comics. And so one of the things that's insane about G.I. Joe is that it works, that it works well because Hama is a cartoonist. He does super tight, plots as far as i'm aware with in terms of he probably did page by page you know script breakdowns um and so even though wiggum himself is of a kind of visually underpowered kind of uh dude like gets the job done like he's definitely a guy where his car looks like a car and his his boat looks like his boat, and well, it's it's entirely serviceable. It's yeah, entirely, it, it's exactly it's literally fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I personally think that if you did not have Hama writing the scripts and plotting the issues the way that he did, you would not have. Uh, for me, Volume Five of GI Joe is a fucking wild ride. Because it is just really smart storytelling. Like every page is accomplishes something. Like we're all used to talking about like the comic book page as a unit. Hama just does amazing stuff with the pages here. Like each one of these things kind of has that classic um comics feel of by the time you get to the end of it you're like i can't believe how much stuff was jammed into one issue and it's oh yeah it's beyond the level because unlike someone like um claremont where like claremont's x-men is sort of also huge at the time is a big team book lots of sprawling stuff and plot lines going all over the place like it's definitely a book that is sort of more psychological, but also kind of, um, you know, there's times where it totally picks up the pace and kicks ass. There's times where it sort of lags and chases its tail for its full, you know, for, for an issue or two. This just hauls ass. And, and honestly, for me, it's really interesting reading reading G.I. Joe, because I think while doing Drock, uh with you, I spent a lot of time saying like, man, why couldn't we have American writers and artists who essentially kicked ass at the level that Wagner and Grant did? And honestly... And Hama was doing that. Hama was. He absolutely fucking was. Each one of these stories is so packed. And it's interesting. They don't in some cases, they sort of remind me a little bit of Dread um, 
in terms of being packed with stuff and especially when the satire rears its head but more often than not it actually reminds me of some of the you know british comics from the 70s from action or really early 2000 ad where it's just like people have got three pages and so they've got to make shit happen and there is like there is not a wasted page on here you know it's like if there's not an amazing graphic if nothing else just the fact that hama will split his pace between he'll cut between the joe whatever joes that you have in the issue he'll and then whatever the villains are doing and then usually some third or even fourth storyline and it's not kind of like you just check in with the villains like it's a ping pong match the the amount of coverage in each one of these issues just blew my fucking mind Graham I gotta say this was some no, it, great shit to it's read genuinely amazing it's yeah. genuinely amazing stuff yeah. and what's amazing is he keeps it up for so long yeah like there's 155 issues I think in this mm-hmm. run yeah uh, I would say it holds up at least through like the early hundreds mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Things, things do start to go awry towards the end which people say and it's also there i'm curious to find out why and how and it, what happened because hama leaves for a bit too and then comes back for the end i don't think he does no i think Hama's on the entire run uh, i mean he could be maybe i write, misread the wikipedia entry on him but i swear they were like he was strong through 118, and then I felt like he disappears for a bunch and comes back towards the end. Let me see. Uh, but part of the problem is the toy line is undergoing like significant changes. Mm-hmm. And again, he's he's got to tie in with that. So you get things like Ninja Force. Right, right. You know? Um, yeah. But, but like so much of the run keeps up at the level it is in this volume, which is amazing. It's such a sustained run. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. He just fucking kills it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is just like, it's it's amazing comics, and it's amazing comics to just continue to stay amazing, for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, and, and are amazing, like I was saying before, on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, like, the first issue in this collection is for the kids like for quote-unquote the target audience you know the the because of something that happened in the previous issue gi joe have dropped a bomb on a fault line which causes essentially a new island to be created yeah. in the middle of the cobra claimed the island and gi joe decided they have to get cobra off the island uh and it ends with cobra basically like claim diplomatic immunity claim the island for themselves to claim diplomatic diplomatic immunity and the joes have to leave they're yeah. ordered to leave but i mean just the fact that it ends with cobra commander saying something along the lines of if you have the best lawyers you can get away with anything yeah exactly what a great <laughs> system if you have enough money and you can hire the best lawyers you can do anything you want and the the last shot is just kind of the beaten crestfallen joes who literally and that's the other thing that was amazing was was also they're all wounded they're all going in they have to storm the beaches of of this new island and most of them are shot to hell and 
just watching them tr- scramble. Scr- I mean, that's the other thing is because Hama. So uh, there's a couple of things going on here that I think are, are really great. And that I that back when I was younger, I didn't look at GI Joe, dismissed the few issues that I had. Um, and one of the things that I think is is interesting about Joe is and what Hama does with it is I would say roughly for the most point when you have war comics because you are fighting a real enemy in the war comics nine times out of ten the other side is nothing other than kind of propaganda you know what I mean and one of the things they're, yeah, they're, they're dehumanized. Just, yeah. yeah, they just they they yell a couple of catchphrases in their language, and then they get gunned down, or they you know capture someone and rub their hands and talk about how they're going to torture the other person. Um, but because these are imaginary villains, I think the the bad guys of Cobra all get a lot of great personality. There's a mm-hmm. lot of little zingers. Cobra Commander, of course, is the best. Um, and that's the other <laughs> thing. It's very it's very hard not to read this stuff and realize, like, it, it inspired... It really does go on to inspire shit from Venture Brothers. And not, uh, like, how do I Not put the it? shit that you necessarily think. There's more yeah. than just shipwreck going on uh, in, yes. in the Venture Brothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there's there's all sorts of of dealings and double dealings and uh, romance and romantic sabotage happening through it. At one point, at one point, like the Baroness and Cobra Commander are arguing about the strength of Doctor Blood's poetry or something like that. It was just really great stuff. Um, I think the other thing that I want to point out that's also kind of amazing is this volume ends with the Battle of Springfield, where Springfield has been the, uh, essentially is Cobra Town. You know, it's the full town that more or less is the secret supply source of Cobra and where they more or less hide out and launch and, and attack from. And, uh, understandably once they get cobra island and they get diplomatic immunity and they're able to more or less sit at the big boy table it kind of makes sense that that you don't necessarily need springfield uh anymore but of course the thing that's amazing about hama is the the climax in the battle of 50 is literally the conclusion of a subplot running through this whole volume in which Ripcord and what's his name? I don't know. I have to say, I do have to. The Dreadnought? Yeah, yeah, the Dreadnought. Yeah, the the guy with the the with the awesome eye uh, shade and the the little hat thing. Zartok? What's his name? Zantek? I swear to God, most of these guys. Zartan. Yeah, Jesus. They all sound like erectile dysfunction uh, pills, which is, again, probably says something about the strength of, of. the influence that G.I. Joe has had on <laughs> Sub Rosa on pop culture. But <laughs> so, yeah, Zartan and Ripcord, who both more or less discover the true location of 
the bases for for the Joes and Cobras, respectively. And, you know, are trying to get that information back to the other forces in time. So by the time you get to the Battle of Springfield, it is, you know, a culmination of an almost extended Roadrunner-esque series of back and forths with those two guys being mistaken for one another and ending up on each other's facilities and and being you know uh secretly having to escape or having someone else smuggle them out just in time even though they would have been saved if they had stayed behind like Hans just so super deft um but one of the things i love about springfield is you know Hama's Dama is an Asian American guy who was like born in the late forties and 49, I think, and was no stranger, uh, to prejudice and bigotry. And, um, and basically one of the things that I think is kind of fascinating to me is, is the idea that Springfield where everyone is evil represents kind of another, idea about america you know what i mean like it's 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 cobra town but there's in fact an awesome issue where ripcord uh is trying to get out of the town manages to more or less carjack um a a family vehicle the daughter's (laughs) in the back of the car the little girl and he's like i'm sorry i'll let you out at the edge and she pulls like a 357 magnum on him and was like you you know like hell you pull over i'll you know, she literally talks about the size of the exit wound that it's going to make, you know, and then they're all like, good job, Susie. And she's like, hail Cobra, you know, and that's just fucking great. I mean, apart from all the rest of the satire about Springfield generally. And again, it's sort of it is interesting that Springfield, this this sadly through a trick of history ends up being the um the second the second most popular Springfield in American pop culture after The Simpsons, <laughs> which came after it, uh, is is that Springfield does represent this kind of the part of America that that we that American pop culture likes to pretend doesn't exist. You know, it's what, basically it's, a racist, bigoted little town, you know, yeah, I, written like, large. There's, there's there's a lot to that right Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. one of the things i really like about this volume in particular is you get the story of wade collins yes right and wade collins was an army buddy of snake eyes and uh, is it roadblock i can't remember who. uh oh no it's not roadblock i want stalker yeah and 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 snake eyes snake eyes stalker and then the third yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and and he he basically goes bad and becomes a, a, a Cobra soldier. But in the process, you get made clear. It's, it's been fairly clear to this point, but you get it made like very clear that Cobra soldiers undergo plastic surgery so they all look identical and are all called Fred. Mm-hmm. They all become white generic suburbanites Yeah, called Fred. To the mm-hmm. point where Wade has been dropped in to replace a dead Fred, mm-hmm. not not in a military position, but in a family. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's like that's amazing. Yeah, that's 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 great stuff. 
I, I really genuinely love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, that that is... I think that part's great. The whole, like... It's funny because there's a few points um, It's where Hama cheats. And that's the other thing with his exquisitely breakneck pacing in this. Because they literally do a thing where... Uh, Wade is like, you guys left me for dead. Uh, Cobra was the only one who cared about me. Like, you, you guys should have just left me to rot and die. You didn't put a bullet in my head and I became a POW. And then when I came back from Nam, I got spit on. And they were like, look, buddy, you've got aces up your sleeve that you don't even know about. And then there's, you know, because the miracle of G.I. Joe is just about every page cuts to a different scene uh, and then cuts back later. Um, you basically have Wade being like, yeah, they, sh- these guys showed me what was what. And I realized I'd been wasting my life as Cobra. I'm like, wow, you had to cut away from that speech. Like, you know, but it's kind of genius because you're like, Hama was like, eh, maybe I can't carry this off. Like, you know what I mean? Like he just, he cuts away. There's, there's a whole scene where four people get killed. Like, almost entirely on panel and toward the end like three issues later you find out that one of them is apparently still alive and i'm like okay but how you know and in a way it doesn't matter but um it is funny the rest of the time like i only noticed that more or less on a reread of each because i was like because he just keeps the hits coming and coming and coming like he doesn't stop these, yeah. these comics just don't stop, which is a lot of their joy, yeah. right? A lot of the fun from this is it's not that plots don't resolve, although, like, there's a shit ton of, of long-running plots that don't resolve in this book. You mm-hmm. know, all the Hardmaster stuff takes a long time to resolve. Right. The Billy stuff takes a really long time to resolve and goes in, in some fascinating places. Um, but he just keeps going. Like, it... it, it there's no uh even like the end of the battle of springfield mm-hmm. when you read the next issue you realize like oh that that keeps going yeah right no the absolutely and stories right. just keep going and keep going and build and build and build and that's it's got such momentum well that you you just like you can't help but but be swept up in it yeah, and I, I should say I should say that part of the thing here it, that that I think is super worth mentioning for Hama and why he deserves points, huge points, and and also why I think in a way, again, I feel he's really deserves kind of that that sort of Wagner Grant levels of of recognition is his plotting isn't just like, oh, thing happens, thing happens, thing happens, thing happens, which is definitely true. It's how each of those things ping pong off of each other and build to it. Like you essentially get to a point where Ripcord and Zartan are, you know, dueling it out. Um, Ripcord is, is wounded and being hunted down. Ripcord has more or less in his need to find out what has happened to his uh, beloved has disobeyed Joe orders and parachuted onto Cobra Island, which Hawk, is it Hawk or flag knows about and, and knew would happen and more or less 
says like now that now that we have ripcord there we have an excuse to send back an extraction team to get him off and while they're there who knows what they might take pictures of or what you know covert intel they might capture so you've got the cobra island thing you've got ripcord story which has been run several issues and then the death of the hard master that has been the whole circling incident between storm shadow and snake eyes they reunite to 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 get the person who has killed the hard master that everyone thought was storm shadow and sent all these problems but did not and it is in fact zartan so you literally get all three of those events like come together and tie together in this really satisfying way and then resolve in sorts of all kinds of crazy shit like as you point out does not end like it would i without spoilers i will say that out of all those people that i mentioned someone ends up shot in the chest and dead by the end of one of the issues and then they don't disappear no they still end up popping back again in ways that are entirely all about comics like the awesome absurdity of superhero comics that is somehow tied into a ridiculously um detailed understanding of military history i guess and that's the other thing I, that I, i've not just military history military dynamics as well yes military history military dynamics and military technology you know um there was a reference to the the um the military history bookstore in New York that Larry Hama held hung out with because he did his research. He, he knew his stuff from, from Vietnam, but he also went in and um, researched the shit out of this stuff, uh, which is again, just, I find so incredibly inspiring and awesome. So let's see if they say what the name of the thing is. I have to look that up, but but yes, the so and I would say that in a way, if Springfield is one form of America, um, I think I think the Joes represent another form of America. You know, the better America that is essentially a completely integrated force for good, where everyone respects one another and has one another's back. I mean, it's more, hmm, it's kind of sometimes less inclusive by race and more inclusive by action figure, I guess, you know, um, but I mean, that was kind of the times, I guess, but there's very yeah, much a sense of this is a huge, um, another type of uh, american experience that that mm -hmm. he wants to celebrate and he really does a fabulous job with um do, 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 it, do. like I, yeah. I i'm curious so i like i said bought all of these books <laughs> right right i mm -hmm. bought all 15 volumes of classic gi joe did you end going i want to read volume six yes in fact i I downloaded volume six. So, so that, I guess that is actually something that I should mention is that, um, I actually had bought the first 
four volumes of this on some super steep IDW sale and then didn't have time to read those. But Comixology Unlimited does have, I think it has access to all 20 volumes of the classic G.I. Joe. So, you know, because as you know, Graham, or I I assume is, so Hama writes the farewell and I was totally wrong. I thought he was gone for a while because of the gaps, but there's only two or three gaps, uh, two or three issues, um, like approximately every 20 issues or so before the finale. 155 is done. They, IDW commissions him to write 155 and a half back in like 2006, 2007, and then continues to reprint stories from that continuity from 156 on. So I think the first 15, 16 volumes of classic G.I. Joe are the original Marvel run. And then the final three volumes or four volumes are the volumes that, um, that Hama comes back and writes for IDW. But if you have a comiXology unlimited, or you've been thinking about getting comiXology unlimited, you it looks like you can read all of those read, volumes. Like, the entire run, right? Yeah. And and I run. I might do that, Graham. I have to be honest. I really enjoyed the shit out of volume five. It it really did give me that sort of amped up uh on monkey gland um adrenaline shot that, that classic dread did. And again, it's not it's 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 not especially deep. Like it's interesting to me. Hama talks about how he writes for the characterization. Um, supposedly, and this totally blows my mind. If true, Hama more or less writes every issue spontaneously and does doesn't know doesn't really plot ahead, which would break my brain if that's true. But it does give an unbelievably organic feel to the stories where you don't really necessarily know where they're going or sometimes you totally know where they're going but you're shocked by the way it gets there um but one thing that i am surprised by is he is that the comics themselves are not uh i mean you know like i don't know to what extent people want quote-unquote depth to their comics but let's just say like this, this is you're not going to mistake these for Claremont's X-Men or Neil Gaiman's Sandman or Alan Moore's Swamp Thing anytime soon. You know what I mean? Like they're just not like it's interesting that Hama is like, yeah, you write from the psychology or about the characterization. But I think what he excels at is um Unsurprisingly, because he ends up being an actor himself, it's kind of funny to be talking about this um, so soon after the death of Stephen Sondheim, because, um, you know, Hama had actually was one of the guys who was actually in the original uh, 76 production of Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures, right? So he's an actor, and I think he has that actor sense, even though he's still an artist and a cartoonist. He has a little bit of the actor idea of give someone motivation, you know, give them a thing that they want that powers them, and that what they want will power them through every scene. And I And I think that's part of the power of this volume of, of classic G.I. Joe, volume five, is is at every point, 
every character, even if it's, God help you, Sergeant fucking Slaughter, who pops up at, like, issue 48 or whatever. It's amazing, right? Yeah. That was like, oh, wow. Hmm. Strange. And you you may or may not remember. You may or may not know this. Sergeant Slaughter was a G.I. Joe action figure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They made an action figure, yeah. Well, yes. So he was a wrestler who became an action figure. Who became an action figure, yeah. Yeah, who became an action figure and then became a character in the comic. My understanding from a quick perusal of Sergeant Slaughter's Wikipedia page is supposedly part of the reason why he left the WWF is they would not give him the approval and clearance to appear in G.I. Joe as an action figure. And I think he might have also been in the cartoon and or movie as well as the comic and he was like well screw that so he went with the awe and then weirdly enough this flips years later where he more or less gets kind of written out of the tv show and the comic because he goes back to the wwf and ends up doing a heel turn as like a russian spy or something like that oh no 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 and a pro Iraq sympathizer. Anyway, it's not great. It's not a. It's it's definitely uh, like, oh Vince McMahon, you 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 nightmare human being, you. But um, it's it's kind of wild to see a real person pop up in the middle of all this, even if that is a kayfabe uh, version of a real human being. It's still a little disquieting. I kind of wish that you know. I don't know, Todd Rundgren had gotten in on the act or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, there's so really many not, other people. not seem out of place, right? <laughs> oh, not at all. I mean, that's, it's, yeah, completely. It's the weirdest, it's the weirdest comic. Uh, it's, yeah. It is a classic of 1980s comics that, uh, that honestly, again, it does not get anywhere near the recognition it serves. Yeah, I the, mean, it's, the people yeah. Who, the people who know about it love it. It's yeah, literally the people one of those cases where, like, mm-hmm. people who have read it one hundred percent love it and, and get it and go, "Oh no, that this this is for for what it is. This is the best example of what it is, of you know, of this form, right? Right. And I right. think it, I think it is an incredible example of multiple forms. It's a great example of again, like the superhero soap opera, right format. I mm-hmm. think I think it's incredibly good for that, even though technically this isn't a superhero comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a great example of like 1980s Marvel. Yeah. Again, you know, Rod Wingham is not a a great artist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But he he does the job here. Well, he does the job. Hammer's pacing is great, and I do have to say that. Um, under the guiding hand of Jim Shooter. And these issues were, of course, edited by Dennis O'Neill, which is, you know, no mean shake as a as a comic writer himself and later leaves Marvel to go on to handle the Batman title um, and lead it to huge levels of success in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but he's... Uh, th- there's a... There's a clarity there. You know what I mean? Like, one thing that Shooter was insane about, and until the cocaine, like, kind of ramped him out of control, uh, 
you know, to the point of ridiculousness, his his emphasis on being able to tell clear stories means that the read here in G.I. Joe, you're never mistaken as to what's going on. And there are multiple characters running around on every stage. There's multiple scenes and battlefronts. Um, and it's all clear. I, I wanted to ask about that because you mm-hmm. do start this the first issue clays in this volume does pick up on a couple of cliffhangers right it picks up on the fact that in the last issue like i said joe's had dropped a bomb on a fault line and created an island but also uh ripcord's girlfriend has been kidnapped right right how easily did you pick that stuff up well i mean it's pretty easy it's pre- no, I mean, you know, I I thought so, but again, yeah. I've read the previous issue stuff, so I, I was right. curious as someone who 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 hadn't, right? Like yeah. what their experience was. Also, did you catch the great joke about the uh, Ripcord's girlfriend's name? Uh, that her name is Candy, and the which part the is there a shout out to the Bow Wow Wow song as no, well her, as that the... her name is Candy Apple. Oh, I did miss that. Oh, shit. Because, because they talk about her dad, and her dad is like secret agent Apple or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Candy Apple. Oh, my God. Yeah. There's some There's some really offhand funny lines here. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's easy to jump in. And, in fact, one of the things that I like is the by creating the island, like the first three or four pages are like – how the hell are the Joes, and for that matter, Cobra, going to survive this insane, you know, amount, tidal waves, you know, that displaced everything? And it more or less just nearly kills everyone, and then they have to go to war. You know what I mean? And which, so there's which is so... actually a really fun bit, right? Yeah. So like, they, the Joes are already completely fucked up. Yes. And then they're like, okay, now you have to go and take an island. Yeah. And that is just fabulous. Like the 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 level of you know everything's gone to shit, but you just got to get her done, which is the classic sort of you know war comic trope, um, is just handled so well there. And then what's great is is that you know the very next issue picks up with Candy being you see her being kidnapped. You see Billy, who's the son of Cobra Commander, being trained by Storm Shadow. And and again, the genius of the story that Storm Shadow tells Billy about uh, essentially you, you're a true, like it, you become such a true warrior and so still and and focused that you more or less know when you're going to die. And and talks about the death of the hard master, and how and why he died, and 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 what it means what it means in the larger sense of achieving these levels of balance. And yet, it's also this perfectly great thing of it sets up the you know for someone like me who has no idea what the fuck is going on. It then sets up this great thing of. At the meantime, this mysterious figure who's, you know, hitching rides and then basically kicks the ass out of the Springfield Police Department to get the classified information out of Cobra's files 
is the soft master and is transmits the the murder of the hard master's death it just all gets knitted together and of course the guy who picks him up who's the obnoxious um commuting salesman who is drinking and driving ends up picking up candy after she manages to escape from buzzer or bastard or whatever the hell he is I don't buzzer know. bastard yeah that that's you uh, know yeah had problems getting that name passed but it somehow got into stores. <laughs> uh, yeah and then he picks up billy right right so they're all it's, in it's there it's panic, <sighs> which is really funny oh yeah. It, it it shows a certain confidence in in Hama, what Hama's doing, that he's like everyone's got the joke now, so I can mm-hmm. just pick up and Candy and Billy are both in the car, and that's fine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, there's just it's all set. I mean, honestly, then there's like a one page cheerful visit to, or maybe two pages to the Vietnam Memorial. I would just, just like, it's great. Like that, every one of these. Every issue like that, of his comics that feeds into the Wade Collins stuff. It it it's it's amazing. It's it's genu- like it's genuinely amazing that he manages to have fun, take diversions, and everything counts. Everything counts. Everything just gets turned tighter and tighter and tighter. One thing I want to mention that I think is interesting because I never I hadn't read honestly i'm still pretty um haven't read enough of or a ton of the work of and i don't know if he just goes by priest now or if it's christopher priest you, you know i'm it's just about, priest right? yeah just priest so just priest who uh started off as an editor uh, at marvel comics in larry hama's office and working with hama like I really see Hama's plotting influence on on Priest. I think mm-hmm. you can really see it here. I you know um, they do it in different ways not, and it builds not, towards different things. Yeah, but not just plotting. I think you see. I think Priest's humor. Yes, something yeah. that you can see there as well. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's completely true. Yeah. Like, because there is it, it, GI Joe for all that it one hundred percent works is like a straightforward action comic and straightforward war comic is really fucking funny. Yeah, yeah, really fucking funny. Yeah, uh, and and works as a comedy or a satire or mm-hmm. both. Yes, yeah, uh, in a way that that it almost shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the weird thing is. I think it works really well as a satire. I think it, it's it it's a legitimately funny book, mm-hmm. but it never feels like it's laughing at the military. Does right. that make sense? Like I feel yeah. like it laughs at military culture, but from an mm. insider point of view, mm-hmm. you know, especially because like there's a, a joke uh, in whatever the the Zartan is is on the loose in the pit issue, whatever that one is forty eight. Um, so the whole setup is, and I'm not sure how much of this place is someone who doesn't like, who hasn't been reading GI Joe for a while. But the whole thing about the pits, the GI Joe base, is only the Joes know it's the pit. Mm-hmm. There's also regular military there who don't know the pit exists, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they think that the Joes are, I want to say they're like the, they're chaplains or something. Mm-hmm. 
And so you get a joke at one point about how uh, the the regular military are surprised at the, the amount of traffic and the amount of panic happening from the chaplains. <laughs> right? It only only works a if you've been paying attention to to you know the 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 structural setup mm-hmm. of 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 what the pit is, mm-hmm. but also if you. It, it works as sort of like a uh, an internal an in joke that you know these regular enlisted guys don't mm-hmm. really think that you know like the the, the weird snobbery of the, the mm-hmm. armed forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really funny. You're right. I would have missed that. Well, the stuff with Springfield, of course, is is fabulous. Yeah, no, I, it's it's interesting to me. It's a fun comic. It has laughs. It has goofiness i mean it's just it's it's like a lot of the comics that you and i tend to like in the sense of you know like i i don't know if you would subscribe to this but one of the things i put forward about part of why wagner's so genius on judge dread is he 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 may not take the characters seriously but he takes the work seriously you know, and and for the most part, I think you're right. I don't think he's never making fun of of the Joes. You know, in fact, they're all very laudable guys, but they're all sort of able to tease at one another and and josh at one another. There's kind of a great sequence. Part of what won me over is is that in that real early on, um, you know. There is this tidal wave that is knocking, you know, is coming in, and and basically a good chunk of the Joes are on, you know, a, a naval carrier, a, an aircraft carrier, and um, you know, somebody's like secure all the lines and clear the decks, and somebody's like the Sky Strikers, they aren't all secured yet, and he's the other guy says that's too bad, everybody's taxes go up next year, and I'm just like that's a great line you know and because it just to me conveys 100 percent the kind of like you said a little bit of that military mindset in a way that's believable you know it's it was a great volume i honestly i will be honest to, to answer your question earlier graham i downloaded classic gi joe volume six as soon as i was done with volume five and the only reason why i didn't start <laughs> in on it was I didn't want to risk getting confused and start talking about something that happened in a later volume. Yeah, like I, I just it, it's completely. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy it's on unlimited, to be honest, mm-hmm. because it's, it's completely addictive comics. It, yeah, really, it really is. is. It's mm-hmm. so much fun to just like run through, and these are right. not short books, right? No, these are like they're all two pages. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, ten issues of it. It's it was i i had i had a great time reading it and i read through it in a big clip but it was also sort of a little bit of like three issues or so and i'd have to take a break and in part because the hammond does not waste space man there's always something happening these are packed comics these are yeah i'm getting not in uh you know i i do draw a line between like this and claremont just Mm -hmm. as far as like i do think there's there's there is an understanding of how to use soap opera mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that I think just just 
the two of them share. But this is not Claremontian in the sense of like sometimes Claremont's pages take a long time to read just because they're overly wordy and yet nothing exactly. really happens. Exactly. And Hama's just the opposite. Right. Hama, Hama is actually very economical with his right. dialogue. Yeah, but absolutely. The, the amount of fucking information he stacks into these comics is, is amazing. Oh, completely. Completely. Yeah, no, agreed. And and a lot of that is, like you said, it's all... He writes his dialogue really tersely. There's not a ton, at least in this volume, of thought balloons. But also, like I said, I would be shocked if he was not writing super tight scripts that look more like, you know, panel breakdowns and everything. Because there's just... There's stuff that is... Um, there's there's visual storytelling here that that then prevents the redundancy of the writer trying to explain something that wasn't clear or talk about something else that they've you know got to cover for a gaff or something like that the intention is incredibly strong and and my apologies like rod wiggum uh that could be hugely um on his shoulders as well, it may be really it's, but, unfair for me. But it's, it's not. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. Again, he's doing everything he needs to do, right? Yeah. He, he 100% is. I'm. He is in no way uh, not a competent artist. And he's not – it's not like he's losing any information. And one of the reasons right. I think the later issues are lesser is you do get artists in who do just like – cut corners or don't have the same amount of information in in part because styles change mm-hmm. and so by the time you're you're doing like gi joe comics in 93 you have right yeah right right you have yeah. sub image artists who are right. not getting it right in in addition to you know the toy line is trying to go after an audience that reads image comics as well and so there is sort of a uh uh uh, broadening of the materials to the point where I, I think it is weaker, but um, but like you know, we're talking all this about how how great Hama is and how great GI Joe is, and we've not mentioned the the silent issue, the famous silent issue once, which of mm. course Hama draws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, we it it's hard. I wanted to leave sort of leave the discussion pretty tightly on these volumes, but absolutely, issue twenty one. Silent interlude is is kind of uh, the hugely influential piece of comic storytelling and absolutely great. In fact, one of the things that was really funny is I was like, "Oh right, like Larry Hama actually did you know one of his instructors uh, in was uh, Bernie Kriegstein?" I mean, that makes sense. I didn't, but that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Kind of in that thing of like, oh yeah, okay, that really does make sense. But I was like, oh wow, that's unbelievably cool and somehow unsurprising that a guy who ended up, um, yeah, at the Manhattan's High School of Art and Design, where one instructor was Bernard Krigstein, unbelievable. Um, yeah, Hamas just. Anyway, if you want to talk about this island issue, please do. But I think I'm just going to sit here nodding in reverence for a while. No, because honestly, it's it's, and I I I, I think the silent issue is like the one issue of GI Joe that is sort of taken seriously, yeah. like you know, mm-hmm. part of the comics canon. If not, if people aren't familiar with that, then I mean, fuck yes, one hundred percent. 
look look for it. It's an amazing piece of comics. Mm-hmm. It's a genuinely amazing piece of comics. Um, but Hama's stuff here is just, I mean, it's all time great work. It really is. It really is. Oh, so right. So as part of what you were saying, as you mentioned, the nineties with the image influence and nineties comics, like what the page is trying to do is very different in that era than what it's trying to do here. Like this is like you said, when I mentioned the fact that he ended up, um, Hama ended up being a uh, assistant to Wally Wood um, on things like uh, Canon and Sally Forth and things. It is there is a um, a lack of showiness to it. You know what I mean? Like there's cool things happening on every page, but I mean you do not see a full page splash. I think in in any of these ten issues, apart from, apart from the, the opening page. page, yeah, which is always an opening page splash, and so um, I think that's the other thing. It's one of those comics that you just sort of, um, yeah, it's it's a little hard to get super horny for the artwork. Apart from, of course, Mike Zek's amazing covers. Oh my god. His he's he just draws the scowliest guys in comics at this at this time and is just the best. Um, these guys, the, there's so many absolutely peak scowls in GI Joe uh, classic GI Joe Volume Five, and they're just all from the covers. Unbelievable. Mm. But yeah, no, this stuff should be for people who like 2000 AD, who've never really gotten into American comics. I would, I would recommend that they give it a shot. If they were the people who people who loved this this era of GI Joe um, and love Larry Hama's GI Joe, man, they should really try out some classic 2000 AD stuff because there's, it's a lot more simpatico than I was there. expecting. Yeah, there really is. You know. But it's, but Hama such... Yeah, please go. No, I was just gonna say like there's there's there was such an era of like genuinely great comics work happening mm-hmm. then, but not in the places that you necessarily think. Yeah, no, very much so. Very much so. Um which is fine. I mean, you know, that's kind of I guess I mean, that's, that's the way works, it goes. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's literally just kind of how it works. I mean, and there are things that I think are... I mean, the thing that's hilarious is the stuff that, that works its magic on you when you're young. So it's kind of to bring it back to the beginning of what you were saying, is, is I don't really get the sense that, although you're enjoying the nostalgia, Simon Furman's work aside, it doesn't sound like the Transformers work really holds up as well as the gi joe stuff does oh not even in the slightest yeah not not it doesn't come close right transformers work honestly is in many cases not good right right? but the nostalgia Mm -hmm. is very strong or in other cases like it it works for me and i'm very curious why it's working for me Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it's working for me because i'm like oh i had that toy 
or is it working for me because it's a good comic? Whereas right. you just don't have that at all in G.I. Joe. Like, mm-hmm. you could be unfamiliar with these characters altogether. Yeah. And it would still work as a comic because it's just astonishingly good comics. Mm-hmm. 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 You know? Yeah. I, and honestly, I think that's where I fall on things like Micronauts as well. Right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have any Micronauts toys. Um, I... I, I don't really have a nostalgic attachment to, to Micronauts, or at least not the the Mantlo stuff, right? I, mm-hmm. I like I read parts of it when it was reprinted in Future Tense, but not to the point where I even consciously remembered it. Mm-hmm. But when I read it now, I, I see, and this this is meant as, this is meant as a compliment, even though it doesn't sound like one. I see off-brand Kirby, right? And I love right. it. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I see Mantlo's weird ambition that is also cynical isn't really the right word but but like a lot of the the 2008 stuff that i love is completely unafraid to lift wholesale from other things mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. almost fan fiction at times mm-hmm. no oh, it, yeah. like when you by the time you get into like the latter year or so of mantlo's micronauts and, you know, Commander Ran is off communing with the Enigma Force. Mm-hmm. You, you are basically reading, like, fourth world fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just incredibly well done and incredibly enjoyable. Right. Right. You know, and done by someone who has enough uh, sense of their own interests and identity that they take it to somewhere that is beyond just fan fiction. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I also think that this is the – I think that's a super important point and something that I was thinking about a little bit while reading classic G.I. Joe is sort of in the same way that by having sort of pretend villains or super villains and not an actual nation – like you can do different things you can humanize the villains in ways that are interesting um you know so gi joe reads like a war comic that's not a war comic like the times when it's like when they're talking about storming the beach at cobra island and and they're like someone's like yeah well you know what to say last off the boat is the last one off the boat but the first one off the boat is the first one to choose their cover and it it's just got all, it's got all this it's got this weird richly textured feeling of like this is not a war comic but it is a war comic it's going to drop all the right terminology it's going to have be totally legit in lots of surprising ways considering half the cast is dressed like the village people you know and yet um you know and yet it's kind of not and because it's not a war comic it gets to transcend it and sort of in a similar way with micronauts because it's not just the fourth world he gets to do different things with it he's free of the what am i going to do with the orion dark side showdown you know kind of thing that that tends to trip up so many people who take on the fourth world after Kirby, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there, there is something to be said for the innovation of, you know, 
you get this weird little thing and you're able to do, you know, in your toy comic, you're able to riff on Star Wars, you're able to riff on the fourth world, and then you're able to go somewhere else with it um, that, 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 it, that, that frees you in a way that the fanfic or even doing the licensed title to something, you know, really ties you down on. Like, you know, for better or for worse, Bill Mantlo did not have to worry about how to introduce uh, Sergeant Slaughter in in Micronauts, the, the Further Voyages, or, you know, in ROM 35 or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, actually, before we, we wrap up, and we should probably wrap up because we've been talking for almost two hours about toys. Um, yes. I said that one of the things that, Derails Micronaut, uh, derails Transformers, and especially in Budiansky's era, is that it just kept having to introduce new characters, right? Right, and honestly, mm-hmm. part of that is also that the new characters. There's a simplicity to start Transformers. The good guys are cars. The bad guys are, uh, are weapons or household objects, mm-hmm. right? Or plates, for that matter, right? The good guys are cars. They're Autobots, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it goes on like, oh, no, but now they're also cassette players. Oh, now they're, you know. Right. Now they're, they're dinosaurs. Also, like, and they're, yeah, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the insertion of new characters just becomes completely distracting, completely over the top and, and disrupts anything resembling, you know, a, a, a sense of flow to the story. I don't think that's the case here at all in G.I. Joe. I, mm-hmm. I think the introduction of characters works and mm-hmm. works in a, a, a relatively organic sense. It's the point where, like, the last two issues in this collection, three issues really, are spent introducing, for all intents and purposes, the new Cobra Commander, Serpentor. Mm-hmm. Right. And it it works on a dramatic level for me. Am I alone in that? No, no. I, 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 thought, I thought Serpentor was really super well done because of all the various bits again it takes for me part of what happens is it in many ways it ends up being a continuation of storm shadows story you know because they get all of the greatest warriors you know and the idea is to take their genetic material and their memories and sort of turn them into one super ultimate military leader and, uh, I mean, it's actually both it and Sergeant Slaughter have pretty strong intros because Slaughter basically walks in while the pit is under siege. And, you know, because no one recognizes him, the they jump him. Yeah. And then later he saves the day. He instantly has the keen tactical mind, to yada, yada, blada, blada, you know, so those those introductions are great. But. I think one of the reasons, and this is, sorry, for me to back up, like, in the, I keep talking about 2000 AD, the, the story that was your first G.I. Joe story, the the um, improvisations on a theme story, is practically a Judge Dredd hot dog run story. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and absolutely um, works because of that. There's, like, no better way to introduce these characters than kind of have them have Lady J take them out into, you know, the middle of nowhere and they're supposed to run maneuvers. And she's like, "Mm, I'm not sure. And then basically they run across, you know, Cobra, um, 
who are, have way more uh, stuff at their command because Dr. Uh, Mindbender has this new, you know, these super cool new evil destructive plant things that he's going to set off. And it seems like this impossible situation. And by the end, when they're like throwing like a first aid kit full of scorpions through the window of a van and using the tank that they don't have any uh, ammunition for, but they like hook together a sort of impromptu trebuchet off the end of the, the gun. Like it's just great. But so anyway, but all of which is to say, I can't even remember who those fucking new characters are, but I think they're awesome. I do love them. Like, I don't know. Was that the one when it was like sure shot or quick, quick head? I, or... I see. I, I really don't know. And again, it almost doesn't matter. Right. It really does. Like I, yeah. I, I do not doubt that Hama is writing these characters from the character out. Right. But at the same time, there is a handful of people who I think of as continuing characters in Jeju, and the rest of them are all colorful cameos. And yeah, that's absolutely. Fine. Completely, completely so. Yeah, agreed. Kind of again, sort of like in in more comics from the time. You know, you got one or two characters. Like, I really was kind of... I would love to move forward and back. Because I'm like, man, it's interesting that... You know, Hama's telling a super complicated story. But one thread of that is about a dude named Ripcord. You know what I mean? Like, who's in love with a woman named Candy. And it's kind of like, huh. I mean, he's... you kind of have to go back to read the start of the candy story. Well, I'm sure I do. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's Candy's introduction is one of the greatest introductions in all of comics. Wow. I Unless I'm I, misremembering cuz it's been a, it's been a year or so since I've read it. But if I'm not misremembering, Candy is introduced as someone in a bear costume. <laughs> Okay, I, I, I admit like to being interested. Pisses, I think pisses Ripcord off. Maybe it might just be generically pisses the G.I. Joe's off. Wow. And then ultimately it reveals to be like, you know, this hot woman that Ripcord is into. Wow. I might be misremembering, but I'm fairly sure that's how Candy gets introduced. That's genius. That's absolutely It's genius. like this random annoyance in a bear costume. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Graham, you talked about wrapping things up, which makes sense, because as you pointed out, this was close to two hours, and it was funny. I kind of suspected that it would maybe run about an hour, so, you know, I guess that's typical for us, but I'm still shocked. Well, I mean, did you really think we'd do a whole episode in Toy Comics? I didn't, and yet we did. (laughs) And yet we did, exactly. Exactly. Um, Okay, so let's start wrapping things up. When I'm wrapping things up, though, I am going to sort of do a uh, an update, I guess, to what we said at the end of the last episode. Then the last episode, we did a sort of like, oh, so the next episode's in two weeks. Or is it? We're not sure. Scheduling has to be worked out. We worked right. out the scheduling, everyone. And yes. the short version is, we're going to be on the schedule that we are norm- uh, that we planned on for December. For you guys. <laughs> for Jeff and I, 
slightly not. Yeah. Um, the the reason for this is Jeff has a genuinely nuts December. Uh, to the point where, Jeff, when you told me last week, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was somewhat taken aback at what's going on with you this month. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, so what's happening is, uh, this is obviously out now. You're listening to it. We're doing Drock next week. Uh, and then the following week, there's going to be another Wait What. However, that second Wait What, which is also the last episode of the year, um, yes. is not going to be a regular episode. Right. Uh, it's just it's it's not it's not possible with, without Jeff and or I losing our fucking minds. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, like we 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 looked at it backwards and forwards, and 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 it's just not. So in a weird way, next week is going to be the last time you through Jeff and I properly having a conversation for the yeah, year. That's right. Wow, uh, and weird. then following week, we're going to be doing, uh, people may remember, we did an episode at, at this point a few years ago where Jeff and I recorded bits separately, but we released them together. That's what we're going to be doing for, for the, the final episode of the year. That's right. That's uh, right. But, but for listeners, for you guys, you're getting three episodes this month and they will be released every week. That's um, right. And then, you know, 2022 comes around. I'm going to say 2021. Jeff, what is time? Uh, 2022 <laughs> comes around and everything will be back to normal. But again, what is normal? There we go. Wow. Even I feel like, I dead. feel, yeah. What is love? Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more, Graham. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't, was that no. Hathaway? I, I think it was, yeah. What is love? Um, next week uh, is a drug, but again, just to break with tradition, it's not a drug where we talk about Jeff Dredd. It's a drug when we're talking about Strontium Dog, which means after making Jeffrey 200 pages of G.I. Joe, um, yeah. let's read 400 pages of Strontium Dog. Oh, Jesus, God. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. Um, oh, I should also say, or should I? Jeff, you can cut this out or not, depending on how you feel. We're recording this early for once. This is coming mm. out in the regular schedule. We're recording early. So if any weird news broke in the last few days, and we're, you're wondering why we're not talking about it, that's why. It's really worth pointing out, Graham. Thank you for doing so, yeah. Uh, but also, it means Jeff has more than a week to read 400 pages of Strontium Dog, which is probably a good thing. <sighs> Perfectly honest. Yeah. Again, 400 pages. I'm hoping it goes quickly. I'm hoping you enjoy it. But nonetheless, Strontium Dog, next week. And then after that, uh, Jeff is, is and I will be, I suspect, t- talking about our favorite comics of the year. Yeah, I think that is currently the plan. We'll see. We'll see how heavily we have to swing off that plan. But yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what goes awry between now and then. <laughs> yeah, no um, kidding. Because, because I'm continuing to wrap things up, uh, we will have show notes up for this episode at waywhatpodcast.com. We have a Twitter account at waywhatpodcast. We have. Uh, sorry, Jeff has a Twitter account at LazyBastid, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I have a Twitter account at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Uh, and we are a patron-supported podcast, so Jeff is going to do some talking right now. Or maybe he's not. Jeff? Shit, damn it, muted button. I keep doing this muting thing, and uh, which I think is smart for a variety of reasons. But then there's the getting confused and 
either not mute like basically I, I probably thought I was muted while you were talking through that whole thing and then um, muted myself when I thought I was unmuting anyway listeners you thank god you continue to listen to us considering like I've been doing this for practically a decade and I'm still such a schmo about um, recording podcasts uh, but you guys do actually listen and send us notes and comments and point out things and point us towards awesome comiXology sales at on Twitter and do all so many other things that make our lives great. And the uh, fine folks at Patreon not only do that, but they also throw us a little bit of their hard-earned dosh, which I'm incredibly grateful for. If nothing else, it it, it is easy to look at 15 volumes of classic G.I. Joe for, in my case, $1.79 a piece and being like, hmm, should I? Hmm. So thank you for that, really. It, um, it, it, it keeps us inspired. It keeps us armed with material to talk about and argue about and happily agree on which even that sometimes happens, such as here. Um, I want to give a special shout-out to Emperor Sadri, Queen of the Galaxy, for her continuing support of this podcast um, and this little neck of the galactic realm. Um, Lord only knows where we would be without her. I think my understanding is uh, NASA would have to think about shooting more rockets at more asteroids sooner than they already are. Graham? just think that all that asteroid debris is going to fall on us and kill us like a, a spear of frozen urine from a plane <laughs> we'll be back next week uh, talking about strontium dog uh, <laughs> Jeff did just mute himself for the laugh I think because it started then it just stopped um, oh yeah no. we, we're going to be back next week uh, hi everyone and thank you for listening and otherwise bye